This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Coming up on today's show, Irish Times tech journalist Kira O'Brien will speak to feminist activist and author Caroline Criado Perez about her book Invisible Women. It's actually about some of the things that we talked about in our International Women's Day episode, showing how, in a world largely built for and by men, we are systematically ignoring half the population. Before that, I am speaking to Maria Nilaharta and Roshini Hakade, two disabled women under the age of 30 and members of Disabled Women Ireland. The organisation was formed in May 2018 and was born out of, among other things, a frustration at the voices of disabled people not being heard by any side in the debate around the referendum to repeal the Eighth Amendment. I began by asking Maria to tell me who Disabled Women Ireland are. Um, so I think we've probably got 115 people involved now, um, but it very much started during the referendum in a group chat on Twitter of people who were just very annoyed by um, how things were playing out. Because by of, both sides, interestingly. By both sides, because um, one side was saying no one would ever have a disabled child if they had a choice to have a child otherwise, and the other side wasn't necessarily engaging with that in the way that they should have because the response is obviously having a disabled child isn't a punishment and isn't the worst thing in the world. We need to talk about eugenics, but that's not the issue at play here. Um, uh, there were like Because that's a rather complex issue that can't really play out in a referendum setting or it's not some, it's something that needs to be explored um, more, more deeply and uh, it was just like, let's ignore it. But what probably should have happened alongside that is a recognition that actually um, disabled women also require abortions, require reproductive rights care. Um, uh, That didn't happen. Um, If you actually look at some of the statistics, there's significant issues with not having, uh, for for disabled people, not having a right to abortion when when your health is at risk is um, particularly damning. There is an incredibly high rate of maternal mortality for disabled women in this country, and you're 68%. And we're, uh, according to a University of Birmingham and a University of Oxford study... Give, give me that again, Maria, 68%. 68% across uh, Ireland and the UK of maternal deaths are women with pre-existing conditions. That's all sorts of disabilities from epilepsy and like long-term mental health conditions to... Um, uh, people with intellectual disability, people with physical disabilities. Um, uh, so it's 68% across that, according to the studies that have been done. Uh, and like, so we face huge inequalities and disadvantages in pregnancy, um, but that wasn't acknowledged. We only ever actually talked about disability in the context of fetuses 
um, uh, and not actually in the context of broader women's reproductive rights. Disabled women are 7.5% of the population. 7.5%? According to the census, it's actually arguably higher. We don't count disability particularly well in this country uh, and our our voices were completely ignored. 70% of the articles about disability in the referendum were written by men. Nearly all of them were written by non-disabled people. Um, were they written by caring men, Maria? How, no, how no, 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 no. Um, uh, they were predominantly written by relatives or friends on, on both sides, but the voice of disabled people w- was lost. So we started off with a hashtag, reproductive rights or disability rights, and started running Twitter chats and kind of being involved in the debates as a group. Um, we then started getting involved with other issues. This week last year, we actually had the ratification of the Convention of the Rights of People with Disabilities and we failed to ratify a key part of that convention, the optional protocol, which is what allows disabled people or groups of disabled people to go to the UN and say our rights are being violated on this issue. Um, we were told it was going to be ratified over the course of a decade that they would be both ratified together at the same time uh, and that failed to happen without the wider disability community being consulted and as disabled people for repeal or people with disabilities for repeal, we uh, basically actually contacted a, a, a number of, of journalists and made an issue of it. Um, so that's when we actually it was quite a while ahead of the referendum and ahead of um, the formation of Disabled Women Ireland that we started working on kind of broader, broader issues um, together as a group. Okay. But it, it was clear that we were going to keep on going. Roisin Nihak Age, actually Roisin Hackett, but there are 12 of you, I think. Surprise <laughs> <laughs> me. No, there are two of you. So you use the, you use the, the, the Irish version of your name. Yeah, yeah. Um, Patriotism. So Roisin, you've been, you've been on this, this extraordinary rise for the past, what, nearly a year now. I mean, was this, was, it, was this bubbling in your head for a while beforehand? Have you been in a state of exasperation for, for, for a long time? Um, well, like, I am only three years after acquiring my disability, I would say. So I acquired my disability at 17 and I'm 20 now. And, um, like, the first time I came across people with disabilities together for yes or um, disabled people for repeal, th- there was two groups, um, was through the repeal campaign. And that's the first time I ever came across any form of, like, uh, Irish disability activism that appealed to me that wasn't just... Um, kind of groups of able-bodied people providing a charity, which which never appealed to me. Like, um, like I think I think holding that kind of independence and stuff is is so so important to have that kind of self-advocacy um, groups and being surrounded by other disabled people. Also, young people, Roshi. Yeah. I mean, you're you're nearly all under thirty, I think, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, we we we've we've grown. We have we have we have many over thirty members now. We've even got over fifty members. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, Roshan, it must have been a relief to find that that people of your age were actually involved in this. Yeah, because like my first, um, I guess, encounter with other disabled people was in the National Rehabilitation Hospital, um, and I was in the spinal unit, and we were all at that kind of same period in our lives where we were in like you know post trauma, and we were coming to terms with like our new identities and stuff. So there was a lot of internal ableism, so what we call it, is like you know like a lot of self hatred and you know, putting yourself down for using a wheelchair, using mobility aids and stuff. So it was actually quite a negative space. But it was also where I met my first disabled friends and other people like me, um, which was really important for my own coming to terms with things. But then having this new group of people who are really proud of who they are and are are so... And at a kind of different level than I am, 
which has brought me up to that pride, um, is really, really important to have like role models like that in my real life. Um, so like that's that's what I keep talking about is what an amazing thing of like a, a huge part of Disabled Women Ireland is providing a community and a group of of people like you that you can talk to about shoes and like just little stuff that I've never had a chance to talk to anyone about in real life. Because what's interesting about this, Roisin, is that that because uh, many of you are not able-bodied and therefore not able to meet in a third-storey floor in North Great Georgia Street or something every Thursday, you you meet in all kinds of technology is a huge help here. Yeah, yeah, and I'm always I'm always talking about the role of social media in allowing disabled people to be activists and the way that we're moving from, um, you know, really yeah, valuing traditional activism, being out in the streets, marching, occupying spaces to doing these kind of like, yeah, hashtags like, like Crip the Vote and... Yeah, which I must say took me aback a little bit. Are we allowed to say Crip the Vote? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So in, in that your short, idea? No, no, no. It's it's uh, was established in the states, um, and it was basically this Twitter campaign. But basically, they were trying to start this campaign to highlight voting inaccessibility in America, um, the inaccessibility of polling stations, and um, people would use this hashtag to not only alert other people that the the um, you know, be careful about this polling station because there's two steps into it, but also to share their stories about their barriers to like civic participation. Um, so other people would then be aware of that, you know, voting isn't isn't accessible for all. I, yeah, and I love the idea of being able to talk about shoes um, and, and normal things. Uh, I, I think, I think that's the wonderful. Podcast? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I think that's terribly important that we also are able to sort of laugh and 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 find, you know, where where there is joy or spark joy, as Mary Kondo said, <laughs> <laughs> much to my annoyance. Um, Marie, what are the goals of this group now? Um, basically to elevate disabled women in, in every le- level of social and cultural and political and, and life. Like we've um, a lot of really um, class members uh, doing a lot of really great things um, from being involved in film to um, fashion to law and politics and writing and um some like are being like really active in early childcare education. So we're bringing all of those skills together. Um, but we're looking at actually making sure that our voices are heard on, on every issue because there isn't an issue that disabled women, that, that, that doesn't concern disabled women. Like it's just statistically improbable. Um, if people say their issues aren't disabled people's issues, they're, they're not looking closely enough. Um, so it, what in particular, Maria, are we talking about? Um, so like right now, there's a lot of conversation around reproductive rights. There, we've got three years until the review of the legislation comes in. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, barriers for disabled people within the legislation we have on termination of pregnancies, but also within the wider debate on that, like things like parenting, um, uh, sex ed, huge, sex uh, like that's yeah. something that's going through right now. Yes. Um, it being accessible, it's something that's been talked about in terms of intellectual disability by organisations representing people with intellectual disability, but actually like the broader idea of that ha- hasn't necessarily been touched. We're very passionate about straws 
in, uh, in, in like very passionate about straws. Don't mention the straws. Um, uh, because we're we're talking about waste reduction, and while we're definitely all environmentalists, like we're all quite socially conscious, very aware people, straws are are an essential accessibility tool for people with disabilities, and we we need to retain access. There's bills being proposed right now that would ban straws, uh, whereas what we would like is that yes, to reduce our plastic consumption and to ban lots of different things of plastic, but straws are absolutely essential um, because nothing has ever like actually been able to replace the single-use plastic straw in terms of an accessible drinking device. Um, uh, that legislation was completely put together, and I'm not going to name names, but that legislation was put together without disabled people in mind, uh, and it will have huge impacts. Mary, I presume it's because it didn't occur to anyone. Of course not. And <laughs> I presume they felt there would be, like Brexit, that there would be an alternative to, to that there would be other technological inventions that would replace a plastic straw. Anytime we bring it up, we're told, oh, but why don't you use a paper straw? I'm like, try and use a paper straw. Like, 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 like non-disabled people complain about paper straws. For a hot drink as well, it'll just go to mush. Metal straws don't work as well for people with spasms because it's dangerous to have in your mouth when you're spasming. Deadly um, with a hot drink again. A lot of people don't have the dexterity to clean um, those reusable plastic straws as well. Um they need to be movable. Like, there's all of these things that, like, the straw was perfect. It was designed for disabled people. Yeah, um, they were designed for hospitals. Yeah. We then got them everywhere, which meant anyone could go anywhere and get a drink. And now they're talking about banging them all together. Uh, uh, like, that's... So there's there's just so many things that we need to make sure our voices are heard on. What else, Marie? Lots of different things, like housing. Like, we're talking about housing an awful lot, but housing is just so much worse if you have a disability. A lot of people, like, one, we have to acknowledge that there is a huge intersection. Like, disabled people are more likely to live in poverty. Um, uh, like, like the, the current top budget just won't cut it. And if you're looking for an actual accessible property, like... Good luck. It's uh, hard enough to find um, a, a it's, inaccessible one. Yeah, and, and I mean, like in Dublin, like even if we're to look at, we're really happy to get these beautiful old buildings to turn them into offices. But God forbid we ask them to actually be to get them to be accessible or to adapt them. That 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 that's that's just an eyesore. Whereas to be honest, like like there, there, there's there 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 there's no issue that 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 that, that, yeah. that this isn't relevant. And Roshin, you you. Um, uh, up to the age of 17, you were bouncing around the place. More or less, yeah. Never, never had to think about accessibility or steps or anything. That must have been a very traumatic realisation for you that suddenly you actually had to be aware of steps. Yeah. Is that still the case? I mean, is it, is it Louise Bruton has done great work on this, as we know. Um, but is, that, is it still the case that life is difficult for a person who isn't fully mobile? Absolutely. I mean, like, I didn't even realise that I was now disabled until I had left rehab. So I, I spent almost six months in hospital and rehab um, that year. And it wasn't until I left and went back to school that I realised that, oh, God, this is going to be hard because all of the buildings that I was in were all accessible and they were built for people like me and they had raised toilet seats and they had handles and they had like everything that I could possibly need. But then, yeah, trying to go back to my old school and do my leaving cert and uh, like I was literally dependent on my friends to like push me around school and I was... (laughs) um, Why, because there were no level surfaces? uh, It was very, very hilly, but also there was um, lots of single steps which I couldn't get up in my wheelchair. Um, so, yeah, it's just 
that kind of realization that like this world isn't built for like people like me like that was that was really really tough even though that like being in hospital I was I was much worse than when I was when I came out and that's when it hit me and so absolutely and even now like I'm back on my feet and stuff uh and I use a mobility scooter sometimes and like say say I use a mobility scooter like once a month or something it still like shocks me even though I've used it plenty of times as to how inaccessible the world is like do you find that, Marie? Um, yeah, like I don't have, um, uh, like I don't rely on any mobility aids, but like even if we're to just look at the lack of public seating or the the, 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 the kind of fascination that like builders and architects in this country seem to have with steps, right? That there's just one thrown in for seemingly no reason. Um, like ev- everything is marked as kind of inaccessible, but like if someone makes something accessible, it's like brownie points and good rather than actually, no, we're making sure we can serve everybody. This is the standard. Yeah, that, like that's, that's, that's like the, like, like people pat themselves on the back, back an awful lot for doing the bare minimum. And like one of our big things is we, we ascribe to like sort of a disability justice model, but also a social model of disability, which very clearly states that this is actually, it's not an issue of charity. It's a civil rights issue. Um, we are looking at fighting for to change the world to make it work for us because the problem isn't with us. It's about the fact that this world was set up without people with disabilities in mind. Um, and that's very much kind of been been, been the, the, the rallying cry since, since day one. And we're really lucky that there actually is a history of disability rights activism in this country that's um, incredibly brilliant. There's a lot of brilliant women we can follow in the footsteps of um, such as uh-huh. Susie Byrne. Susie Byrne, Rosaline McDonough, Shelley Gaynor, who's over the independent living movement, Lee Gah, who's the confidential recipient for the HSE. I mean, like, the list could really go on and on and on and on. Um, uh, and we're kind of, like, and, and, and all of these th- these people have been brilliant and wonderful and supportive. Um, uh, but, but we want to be p- pushing this on, you know. Um, we're looking where we've seen a huge amount of progress on, like, civil rights in terms of, like, in, in, in both our lifetimes. Like, like I, I was born into a world where it was illegal to be gay I can now get married um, I was born into a world where no matter what I would not be able to access abortion we've seen Ireland be able to get behind issues um, and, when, and, and and kind of embrace that and we want them to do the same with disability not as an issue of charity but, but as a civil rights issue because that's what will push us forward so let's just go back to the to the, to the, to the convention on the rights of people with disabilities mm. Tell me about that. What what would that achieve for you? I mean, would it change things tomorrow for you or what would it if do? If we had actual implementation, I mean, absolutely. Like, the convention is aspirational. It, like, was written by disabled people under the mantra, nothing about us without us. And, um, like, it, it, it it's a game changer. And um, we're so far away from actual implementation and like the realization of that convention, like we're, we're taking step to, steps towards it. Um, the optional protocol would be useful because it adds an extra access to justice. Like there's an access to justice issue that there. It allows us to to like actually um, vindicate our rights outside of a reporting process. Um, uh, but like the convention deals with everything from reproductive rights to education. I mean, like the ASTI are recently like instructing their members to ignore individual needs assessments. Which, like, I, I I had an individual, like, I had an individual education plan my, my, myself when I was in school from the, the moment I entered. Um, like, that, that is the only thing we have as, as students 
um, and as young people to actually like vindicate our right to be educated on some form of level platform and what is an incredibly inaccessible education system. Um, we have one of the largest teachers unions in the country saying ignore that. Um, which is just catastrophic for people. But why are they saying that? To you? Um, because it's under-resourced. And like we stand with teachers and saying education is under-resourced. But by punishing the most marginalised members of your classroom, that's, 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 that, 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 that goes against surely like the ethos that underpins that profession. So would, would the convention actually... We need, a, we need a cultural change, don't we? Cultural, legal, social... Um, like everything, like ground up. <laughs> like if we could start again, we would. <laughs> yeah. Um, Roisin, what are you doing with yourself now? Are you studying or...? Yeah, I'm in Trinity doing a part-time degree. Um, I'm one of the first students to do this split year. Um, I, so I had to split my degree because I had surgery um, over Christmas and I had to take a year out of college and stuff because of a broken screw in my spine. But... Um, you have a broken screw in your spine. I had. That's what the surgery at Christmas was for. Um, but, but yeah, because the this part time degree didn't exist until this year, that like I could have I could have started my first half of my part time degree last year if it was an option. But um, because of the inaccessibility of the university, um, it just it just didn't exist, and I had to take an entire year out. So like it's also things like this that, that we're really pushing for um, is like different ways of going about education that would suit me and it's not only about disabled people like part-time degrees are crucial for single parents people on uh, who need to work to afford rent in Dublin like you know um, it's just accessibility really benefits everyone Marie you held your first AGM yeah. earlier this year we announced our, 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 We announced that we exist mid-referendum in May. We <laughs> held the first referendum in January and our first kind of AGM. first AGM. Uh, we held the first AGM in January, and um, we've kind of been building and growing. And like sometimes there is specific things that we need to deal with really quickly in terms of policy. Sometimes, as like Rochin said, sometimes we have to go to war on behalf of one of our members who might be a lot of the time because a lot of our members are in university like mm-hmm. university and accessibility like on an Erasmus programme or even just one of our rather wonderful um, co-founders, Alana Murray. Um, there, was, there, there, was, there was a week there where we were, um, she had to threaten to bring her own ramp to her graduation um, uh, so she could get on the stage. Um, so all of these things keep cropping up. Um, uh, we're still doing a lot of the very practical building and organisation things from bank accounts to constitutions to value statements and all of that stuff that can be either very interesting or very boring. Um, uh, but exciting. Yeah, but at the end of the day, it's actually having uh, that community in the space that we get to define ourselves. And you have, a, what, 150 members now? Uh, 115 people involved, roughly, um, uh, between... Uh, we're, we're, we're starting to put more of a structure on it. Again, it did happen in... A kind of very natural and formal way. Um, uh, so yeah, it's 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 growing uh, and it, it, it's great. And I, by your next AGM, what do you hope to have achieved? Um, I hope all of the practical stuff we're doing is like finished, uh, and we're, we're we're mainly focusing on campaigns on each other. Um, growing an organisation, sometimes you have to take a moment and like be like. Let's do some of the the, the sensible basic things nitty gritty, yeah. <laughs> some of the nitty gritty. Yeah. Um, so I'm hoping all of that's done. It's important um, to get it right, and and really, it's more about having a movement that we all feel that we own, that we all feel part of. Yeah.
And if there are women listening to this who haven't spotted you on Twitter or wherever, how would they find you? Uh, DisabledWomenIreland.org DisabledWomenIreland.org Yeah. Okay. Maria and Roisin, thank you so much for coming into the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Anytime. And good luck with your organisation and the nitty gritty. (laughs) Thank you so much. (laughs) That was Maria Nilarda and Roisin Nihakaid of Disabled Women Ireland there. And for more information on what they do, go to disabledwomenireland.org. Green and Black's Velvet Edition range introduces a variety of signature flavours in a smooth, velvety finish made with the finest ingredients and ethically sourced cocoa. Choose Green and Black's chocolate and escape the ordinary. Now, imagine a world where your phone is too big for your hand, where your doctor prescribes a drug that is wrong for your body, where in a car accident you are 47% more likely to be seriously injured, where every week the countless hours of work you do are not recognised or valued. If any of this sounds familiar, chances are you're a woman. The statement is the basis of a fascinating new book by feminist activist Caroline Criado Perez, and here she is, talking to Irish Times tech journalist Kira O'Brien all about it. If you've ever wondered why the headrest in the car never feels quite comfortable enough or why your smartphone is awkward to use, a new book may have an explanation for you. Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez looks at exposing data bias in a world designed for men. In other words, women's needs and perspectives are not being adequately represented, if at all. Caroline, I've read the book. One word comes to mind, infuriating. (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I mean, how do you think I felt writing it? (laughs) I would imagine. I can only imagine how bad it was. Um, It's definitely an eye opener. Um, There is an attitude, I suppose, that that is very prevalent at the moment, that women have equality. uh, And Mm -hmm. we don't need to discuss this tiresome topic anymore. What are we complaining about? Obviously, your Mm -hmm. research would tend to prove the opposite. Yeah, um, I... I mean, that's one of the reasons that I decided to write this book, is that I think that... People just aren't aware of the ways in which women are forgotten, discriminated against, um, because we are so used to forgetting about women, basically. You know, we're so used to thinking of men when we think of a human um, that we don't notice that we're excluding women. And so I felt it was really important to collect all this data that shows that actually, you know, we are excluding women when it comes to really important things like medical research and car safety design, and that women are not just being inconvenienced by it, although partly it is being inconvenienced, and there's no reason women should be inconvenienced um, compared to men, but also women are being seriously injured and women are dying. Um, and I, you know, I sort of feel like you can, you can be sort of the most anti-feminist person in the world, um, and yet still think it's wrong that women are 50% more likely to have their heart attack misdiagnosed and 47% more likely to be seriously injured if they're in a car crash. Um, I don't think that that requires you to be um, particularly politically engaged to agree that that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of the book that resonated with me, for example, um, the design of public spaces, the whole thing about your bus stops being isolated and lonely and even just the simple addition of things like the, the board that shows you what time the next bus has really, really made mm. a difference. But I mean, I don't know a single woman who hasn't walked home with their keys in their fist purely mm. because they don't feel safe. And yeah. I, I mean, I've heard people talk women down for being overly ambitious. Men are driven. Women are bossy. Men are authoritative. You know, there's, but there's a few things in books I hadn't really realised. And one of them was the fact that we are all 
judged and everything is designed based on this idea of the average man and the average woman just doesn't come into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's reference man. Uh, reference uh, man. My, my, my good friend. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, and, and yeah, it's everything from from medical research, as I said, to car safety design, you know, the the most commonly used car crash test dummy is, is based around a 50th percentile male. Um, and as a result, women are considered not to be seated in the standard seating position when they're driving because they have to pull the seat too far forward to um, reach the pedals. And that puts them at greater risk of injury in a frontal collision. You know, and, and, and it's sort of even the language that's used, the idea of women, that women are too far forward rather than that the pedals have been positioned too far away. Um, similarly, you know, occupational health is, is really one of the huge areas, I think, that has been massively overlooked. Um, you know, there's this big issue in, in medical research, but there are at least some people who appreciate that we have a problem and that there is some attempt legislatively to try and deal with it. But occupational health research, um, there are some really incredible researchers working on this, but basically nothing in terms of response from the government that, I, that I've been able to see. And this is, you know, a really huge issue. There are all sorts of ways in which women are um, at huge risk at work, all sorts of occupational cancers, potential infertility, um, uh, to, to just sort of injuries. And we know so much about occupational health in men, but we know basically nothing when it comes to women. And that is both because when um, women were working in traditionally male jobs where we have a lot of data, um, the data from women was excluded because it was considered to be a confounding factor. Um, so even in those jobs where we have occupational health research, women were excluded from it. But then typical female jobs, there's just not really been done anything done on it. And so, for example, things like nail bars, where where female workers are exposed to the dust from um, filing acrylic nails and all sorts of toxic fumes that we know um, are, are in nail polishes and shellacs and removers. They're working in this toxic environment. And the consequences for these women range from dermatitis, as I said, through to infertility and potential really serious um, endocrine problems. Um, but th- there's just no data on what the safe levels are for all of these toxic fumes that they're, they're exposed to. Um, and similarly, you know, even cleaners, you know, you might think people often sort of forget about the fact that cleaning is a very dirty and very um, manual uh, job. Um, and, and cleaners can lift as much as or more, in fact, than a construction worker um, in a single shift. And yet we've done basically no research on safe lifting limits for women in in cleaning, or even in fact in women overall, even though um, I think we've known for about a decade, there was a researcher who flagged up the fact that um, basically because women have breasts and we have different uh, muscle mass distribution in our upper bodies, we may, um, you know, the advice to how to lift safety and what the levels are are probably different for women, but Mm -hmm. nobody's done the research on it. And that's, I mean, that's more than just being inconvenienced because your smartphone is too big for it's too big for you to use one handed or the portfolio is too bulky to go under one mm. arm because it's designed with a male body in mind. I mean, we're talking about health issues here, life threatening things. And I'm- Absolutely. But I mean, I, I, I deliberately included all those other sort of more niggly, annoying things that you experience every day. And, um, you know, I, I know that some people sort of think that those things don't matter. But the reason I included them was that I wanted to show that this is 
pervasive it's everywhere and also that it's the product of a way of thinking the reason that your smartphone is too big for an average woman's hand is the same reason that you know women are potentially dying from occupational health related cancers and we don't know about it it's simply that the male body has been taken as the default but even when it comes to stuff that is specifically about women so health issues that specifically affect women or drugs that are designed specifically for women, say like the the Viagra for women example that you gave. I mean, we're still taking more male uh, data into account when it comes to things like that. Yeah, that one is sort of hilarious. I don't really know how they justified that to themselves. So basically that was, they developed a female version of Viagra. It's obviously, it's a different type of drug and it's meant to be for female libido. Um, And they realized that there was a potential problem with the way that it interacted with alcohol. Um, And so they decided to test it and they tested it on 23 men, (laughs) two women. It's ridiculous. Um, And you just think even a lay person knows that female bodies interact differently with alcohol. Um, You know, that's just, that's basic. You don't need to be a doctor to know that. So the idea that they tested this particular thing, and obviously, as you say, it was a drug for women. Um, it, it's it's sort of staggering, but I think it's a really good illustration of, you know, how deep the problem goes. I think one of my favourite bits of the book was when you mentioned about the, the Icelandic strike in 1975 when women just basically took the day off and mm-hmm. men just had to get on with it. I mean, you included some real-life examples of how taking women's needs into account has kind of yielded real benefits, not just for women's lives, but for the economy. And that obviously, you know, people hear that and, you know, money talks. So if mm-hmm. we can kind of put it in those terms, maybe people will start to listen. But it's an absolute no brainer. And it's not like that they don't know about this. So how have things been this bad for this long? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and I, I think it's partly that we don't really see it. You know, we sort of kind of know about it a bit. And there are obviously some researchers who know about it a lot and have been fighting to try and get things like women's unpaid work counted so that we factor it into the economy or, you know, medical researchers who do do gender analysis on their on their data. Um, but I think as a whole, as a society, it's just so strongly drummed into us that... Uh, the male is the default, that it's very, very easy to kind of forget and not notice that you're doing it. You have to constantly be vigilant, really, I think, to not fall back into these ways of doing things. Um, and and I think you can see that from the excuses that, that get used as well. So um, medical researchers, actually, in, in all sorts of areas, that one of the big excuses is that women are too complicated to measure. So when it comes to planning transport Uh, women's travel patterns are too complicated. And when it comes to medical research, well, female bodies are too complicated. Um, But I mean, that particularly when it comes to medical research, you know, that excuse could only make sense in a world where you think women are a niche minority. Because the reality is, of course, that we're not. And these complicated bodies that you don't want to test in because they're going to mess up your nice clean tests are actually going to be using these drugs in the wild. They're going to require the medical treatment. Um, and so it just makes no sense to, to not test on them. It makes no sense to sort of prioritise an easy, cheap test over actual real women's lives. And so I think that that really highlights the, the, the extent to which that, that myth has really taken hold. And of course, then, you know, there are other um, 
pieces of evidence that 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 this uh, of how strong this myth is so for example you know um men picture a a a man 80% of the time when they're asked to picture a person um and they're more likely to picture someone of of no gender than a woman um if they asked to p- p- uh, picture a participant and by the way this isn't just men you know this is this is women as well mm-hmm. there was this really sad study and it, you know it begins really early there was a really sad study from Pakistan in 2008 where i think 10 year old girls and boys were asked to draw a picture of us as in pakistanis um and all the boys drew a boy and basically all the girls drew a boy as well um that's sad so it's very sad it's, it's really sad and it and it is just but but i think it is also important to to acknowledge that and to recognize that this isn't deliberate which makes it in a way harder to tackle but also in a way in a way easier to tackle because it's not about sort of saying you know these are terrible people who are doing terrible things it makes us realize okay this is a systemic issue it affects all of us we need to work together to find a solution um i mean one obvious solution is female representation because although it does affect women women are less likely to suffer from it so um research into uh how the gender balance of a research team affects whether or not they do gender analysis shows that um you know as you might expect if there are more women and particularly women in positions of leadership um the research that they produce is much more likely to be gender analyzed one thing is though i mean obviously we're coming into an age and we are in the middle of an age where data is everything big data is becoming more and more important and it's being used in more things in life i mean ai obviously is going to count an awful lot on data and getting the, the the gender balance right and taking out that inherent bias that can be kind of hard coded into that data is really really important at this stage isn't it yeah i mean the the tech world is kind of terrifying to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest um on a number of levels um the first of which is that there seem there is just no indication that the vast majority of people working in tech have any idea of the problem uh in terms of their their gender gap in their data and so they're blithely going around creating these algorithms which are increasingly ruling our lives from things like you know uh scanning CVs so you know affecting who gets a job um and you know the, they are gradually being introduced also into the medical world i mean i find that absolutely terrifying um because you know human doctors are bad enough um and the thing about machine learning is that it 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 amplifies the bias you know when when researchers have looked into um what uh impact um you know how machine learning responds to having biased data is it finds that it exponentially makes it worse and so when you take that knowledge and the fact that again in medical research the vast majority of data we have is on the male body and you think what are we doing letting loose algorithms in this area i mean we're just not ready to um so it it is it is a major concern and i mean i want all people who are in positions of power to read this book um because they have so much power in today's world and they are shaping the future um and given what they have done so far the f- future looks rather bleak for women mm-hmm. One of my favorite anecdotes about the whole big data thing was uh, a study that was done they were trying to teach 
an algorithm to recognise gender from a photograph and they quickly discovered <laughs> that it didn't matter whether there was a man or a woman in this particular set of photographs, they always came out as women. The, the algorithm always recognised as a woman and the, the reason was because there was an appliance in the background and they realised that the data they'd been giving it was bad data. They'd been giving it lots of photographs of men sitting at desks or you know in different scenarios and mm-hmm. they'd been giving it an awful lot of photographs of women with home appliances. So if there was a washing machine yeah. in the photograph, the person in front of it had to be a woman. Yeah. And that's yeah, like, that just kind of sums it up really, doesn't it? It does. It's uh, it's hilarious. I don't mean that there was um one one um study where the algorithm labeled this sort of balding um overweight man as a woman just because he was stood in a kitchen. Um and <laughs> you know, I mean it's sort of it's funny. But also, when you think about the implications for uh, when this is used in a, in a more serious environment, you know, not just image labeling, um, it sort of ceases to be funny. You know, it starts to become really worrying. What about the willingness of women to participate in data gathering? I mean, privacy is such a huge issue, and particularly for women um, and, and women online. I mean, it's a massive thing that we don't want to give away too much. And while it's one thing to have medical studies and include women in that, an awful lot of the data that's being gathered at the moment is coming from, you know, it's people, are, their photographs are being scraped online and, and stuff is, is being created based on that. And it's companies mm-hmm. that are gathering data and building their algorithms based on the data that they can can get people to hand over. And it, just from my own experience and women that I know, they're increasingly less likely to hand over that data these days because they're worried about their privacy. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the vast majority of what I'm talking about in the book isn't going to be from that kind of data. You know, it is medical research, it is travel patterns, um, it is uh, economic data and all of that, you know, the vast majority of that is researchers actually going out and gathering that data. Um, You know, even things like voice recognition software um, is based on uh, databases of voices that have been collected by researchers. You know, when um, medical algorithms are being trained. They're not being trained, you know, on data that people have put on Facebook. They're being trained on data that's been collected by doctors. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not, I don't particularly feel that that is an issue. And I'm, not, I'm certainly not advocating for women to lower their privacy settings. Um, <laughs> that's not, that's certainly not a solution to the gender data gap. Um, this is about people in positions of power, whether it be researchers or policymakers. Um, ensuring that the data that they go and collect is A, gender balanced and B, sex disaggregated. Thank you very much, Caroline. The book is called Invisible Women. It's well worth a read. I'd highly recommend everybody should read it. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that's it for today. Isn't it astonishing? Thanks to all our guests and a reminder that Caroline Criado Perez's book is called Invisible Women and it's out now. You can stream or download the Women's Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts and all good podcast apps. And remember, we are fond of praise, so feel free to subscribe and write a review while you're at it. If you want to get in touch with us directly, we are on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or email us on thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roisin Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Until next time, thanks for listening.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 